Well, that was some good singing this morning. It must be all the guests that we have visiting with us. We're glad that you're here, and I hope you were uh, present for the First Light presentation because that was an excellent precursor to our lesson for today. We are moving further into the book of Ephesians, second chapter, and today we've come to just one verse because we want to take a look at the background of this verse. When you read the verse, it doesn't seem to say too much, but actually it's saying a lot if you're familiar with the culture of that day. So let me once again pray for us as we begin. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us this written word and you came as the living word to show us how everything fits together, how it should be applied in our lives. And we ask today that you would awaken us as a church through the message of this verse. Lord, it's not something I can do, but through the power of your spirit, we can all grasp the meaning that you have intended in this passage and in this particular verse. I pray that my voice would be strong and that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit as we think together. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Unity in the church, a very important topic. After our introduction, we'll talk about God's illustration of unity. He has a good one. And then the complication that differences make among people, uh, people that are of different nationalities, people that are of different cultures, all those kinds of things. And then we'll look at the explanation of the solution and try to draw some conclusions there. In our study of the book of Ephesians, we've come to a new section. I trust you'll have your Bibles open there. When you get to verse 11, it says, therefore, or wherefore, and that means we need to look back and see what Paul has said before he goes on to something else. We want to review a little bit what Paul has given to the church in Ephesus and to this church and to all the churches. We know it's important. If you want to know what God is doing in the world today and what he was doing at the time of the Apostle Paul, because we're still really living in the book of Acts, then we need to know the epistles. Looking back, you would have thought that the Christmas message would be enough. Christ becomes a man, comes to earth, it's the incarnation, and then he not only teaches us how to live, but he dies for us, and you would think we would get it. But there is a further need, and that need is that those who have received the new salvation will understand how it works out in life and in practice. And that's what Paul is giving us in the epistles, and particularly here in the book of Ephesians. God has a plan, and God is unfolding that plan now through the Apostle Paul, and we want to see what that plan is going to be. As God was speaking through the epistles, he was also working simultaneously in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we shift from what God is saying to what God is doing. And after 2,000 years, back then, God was shifting his channel of redemption from the nation to the church. Now, you need to understand that because you hear people on the radio calling in saying, oh, we're Christians are just like the uh, Islamic Jihad. They were killing people all over the place in the Old Testament. 
Well, that was something very different. God was working through the nation in the Old Testament. And as we learned in Sunday school, the cup of iniquity of the Amorites was full and God was punishing those nations. In Christianity, we don't have some kind of jihad where we go out to eliminate the heathen. And we need to be clear about that. Now, you can imagine when God shifted from the nation to the church, that's going to bring on all kinds of questions and challenges, and that's what our passage is dealing with today. The purpose of the book of Ephesians is to explain and expound upon God's plan during the church age. That's us. We're living as part of what's going on in the church. And his grand purpose for this season, the church, is for Jesus Christ to build his church as a channel of redemption going to all people. That's the grand plan in this day in which we live. We see that in the words of Christ, Matthew twenty-four, fourteen, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, we're very familiar with this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here comes God's illustration of unity. Now, this redemption of mankind from every tongue and tribe and people and nation is an integral factor in preparing for the final revelation of God's mystery. We looked at that mystery back in chapter 1 of Ephesians. The world doesn't have any idea what this mystery would be about. But we ought to understand it well because it's plain as day. And we're going to take a look at it. Ephesians 1 and verse 10. And we have the surrounding verses with it. In Him, Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. There it is, the uniting of all things in Christ, and that actually has already begun. And it began way back in the Old Testament. In the first hour, we saw God speaking to Abraham. And God gave Abraham a message, and he said, if you'll leave your country and go to a land that I will show you, I'm going to bless you there, and I'm going to make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to all nations. Now, how in the world could that be? Galatians 3.8 And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. That is God's mystery, that all things including all nations, are going to one day be united in Christ. So a new year has come. Andrew has challenged us this morning. And here's the target market right here. 
the people of all the nations holding up their little flag. We've got to go to all of those people. That means we're going to have to send some folks. Not all of us can go. We're going to have to translate the scripture, which is just about complete for most all of these people. But we're going to have to share the gospel message and make sure that they understand it. Now, the process that began with Abraham went very slowly, almost imperceptibly slowly. We had Rahab, the Canaanite, and then we had Ruth, the Moabitess, and then we had Naaman, the Syrian leper, and then we had the widow of Zarephath, you remember, in Sidon. And then we had the men who were on the boat with Jonah. And then we had the entire nation of Nineveh at one time. And then we had old Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pretty proud guy, but the Lord struck him with a severe case of lycanthropy. And after seven years, he recognized the one true God. All of these people worshipped the one true God. In the Apostle Paul's day, God pulls back the curtain, as it were, because no one could see where that was going in the Old Testament, although it was included in the Old Testament Scriptures. But God pulls back the curtain and He says, here is my greatest illustration of unity in Christ that's coming for all people and all things. But right now, here it is in Paul's day. What do you think it was? I'll give you a hint. It was international, it was non-political, and it was local. It's the church, the Ephesian church, and all the rest. Very different from the nation. The nation of Israel is going to have trouble going to the Middle East and taking the gospel because it's a nation. But the church can go everywhere. And even we can go where we're not supposed to go because God has commanded us to go and share this message with everyone. So Paul prays for the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, you remember, because he knows this is going to be quite a task that these people have to do. He prays for knowledge and understanding. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power. There it is in verse 10, uniting all things in Christ. And Paul's prayer is that we would get it. We would have the wisdom to know what God is doing so that we can get in business with Him and cooperate with Him. Now, how are we doing on unity in the church? Well, how are we doing on unity in this church? We might take a little survey. Can you think of anything in our church that has been a source of unity in the past that might cause some people to feel left out? You don't have to raise your hand, but we're just flipping through categories here because we don't want anybody to be left out. Unity in Christ in the church is God's picture to the world of his magnum opus, his greatest work of all times, uniting 
all things in Christ. Unity has to do with your affiliation with your church. And includes church attendance, how you speak of the pastor and others in the church. It includes praying, giving, one anothering. All of those things are combined into your affiliation with the church. How are we doing on unity? The world is watching to see how we're doing on unity. And guess what? Sons and daughters are watching as well. And if they don't see the right things in the church in terms of unity, they may decide that it's just not worth it because they don't see the reality of what we're teaching in the lives that we're living. Well, in our verse for today, verse 11, we see the impossibility of unity in diversity. Impossible except for everyone except God and for those who are empowered by His Spirit. Now, if you have the Spirit of God, uh, you can do things that the world would call impossible because nothing is impossible for Him. How about this for a stunning and spectacular illustration of what God is doing in this new channel, the church. And you can remember in Acts 10, Peter had a vision of some unclean animals, and the message of the vision was to go to Cornelius and share the gospel with him. Now, Cornelius was a proselyte of the gate. That meant he was an uncircumcised Roman centurion who believed in God and followed the moral law. If he had been circumcised as a proselyte of righteousness, then Peter would not have regarded him as unclean. So we know where he fits. He's a guy who's heard about God. He wants to get on board and hear more, and God is sending Peter to a Gentile. And Peter said, whoa, I've never eaten any of this unclean stuff. Well, he's not talking about what you have for lunch today. He's talking about spiritual things, that the outward message here is going to the Gentiles, and then God will bring the inner call to their hearts as we're faithful to take the outer call. Now, that would have been a problem for people in Peter's day. If you could just imagine yourself a part of that culture, the outward sign of circumcision was the dividing line between the descendants of Abraham, we refer to as Jews, and everybody else on the planet. You've got these people who have the sign of the covenant, and then you've got all the rest of the people. Jews in unity with Gentiles. Wouldn't that be something? Arabs in unity with Jews. After everything that the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Romans had done to the Jews. Now we're going to be at one with these people and we're going to go to the same church and worship the same God. Wouldn't that be something? That's exactly what God has in mind. And it's exactly what we need to see when we look around our congregation on a Sunday morning. We need to see some folks from all over the place. Oh, we left out the Egyptians, what they did to the, to the Jews as well, to the Hebrew people. But we're going to all be united in Christ. The term Jew... 
typically is used interchangeably with Israelite. The term Gentile came later in biblical history, but basically what we're talking about are the circumcised and the uncircumcised. You're either a descendant of Abraham as opposed to all the rest. Now, the Jews didn't even understand that part. But do you see how getting these two groups of people together would be a great expression of God's mighty power, His resurrection power? Putting them in the same church. You could understand why the Pharisees didn't want to believe in Christ because he kept telling stories like the Good Samaritan who was half Gentile. And they just did not like that at all. Unity of Christ, unity in Christ, would have been difficult. Now, let's take a look at our scripture passage, which is verse 11 and a little bit of verse 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember, we've taken the remember from the first part of the verse of 11 there. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, this unity in Christ and bringing in the Gentiles, it would have been a problem for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. First problem for the Gentiles would have been their relationship with Christ, particularly with regard to God's law. They broke God's law every day, all day. They didn't care anything about Jehovah God of Israel. They didn't even know about Him. They worshipped Diana or Artemis, the mother of all, they thought. And they had a beautiful temple, and it was big-time worship. But there was another problem. Their world, the Gentiles' world, was divided into Jews and Gentiles, and never the twain shall meet. In the opinion of the Jews... Gentiles were despicable, unclean, uncircumcised, and despised. And they were a people to be avoided as if they had spiritual leprosy. And the Jews made sure that they did. You can see how they responded in Acts 21 when the Apostle Paul was accused of taking Trophimus into the temple court and a big riot ensued and it took Roman soldiers and centurions to quell the riot and save Paul's life. Because they wanted to kill him for bringing in Trophimus, an Ephesian, and a Gentile into the temple. Of course, he didn't even do that. But if a Gentile becomes a Christian, both problems should be solved. Christ solved the problem of the law. He kept the law perfectly and credited his perfect record to our account if we're willing to be in relationship with him. And then, if you really love God and love people, you ought to be able to accept the differences in people and become a channel of God's love to whomever, even if their outward appearance is different. See them as brothers and sisters in Christ, but unfortunately, that's not always the case. There is a certain complication that differences bring. Our verse again, you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Here the Jews are calling Gentiles a derogatory name, the uncircumcision, if you will. Jews were so proud that they bore the sign of the covenant. And obviously there was a difference, but they turned the difference into belligerence 
with reference to the inference that God didn't love the Gentiles. That's what they made out of it. Anytime people start talking about what this verse says, they thought we're the chosen people, the Jews, and we have the sign which is made in flesh by hands. Anytime people start talking about what they've accomplished in the flesh by hands, there's going to be trouble. Because that simply means, humanly speaking, in the flesh by hands. We did it, as opposed to what God did. Look what we have done. Look what we have accomplished. Now, they might not say that, but it's kind of a subtle thought that shows up sometimes in our hearts. If that kind of thinking is in a church or in a group, and we're trying to promote Christ, it's going to create some insurmountable obstacles. Insurmountable unless we are willing to gain some unity in a different way. Now, if we want a unity in a particular group, apart from this uniting with Christ, then everybody's got to look just like you. And if they don't look like you and act like you and have the same kind of culture and whatever, then the unity is not going to be there because it's based on outward appearance. Well, really, everybody is the same down inside. We all have a different package. My package kind of wearing out these days, but there's a person down inside. And that person feels like he's 19 years old. We're all the same in terms of our need of a Savior and this gospel message. So the Jews needed a Savior. We saw in chapter 2, verse 3, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, Paul said. They had the advantage of the Scriptures, but their emphasis was on the external. Circumcision, nationality, family, birth, pedigree, education, position, color, money, and so on and on. But God wanted them to understand the true source of unity, and we better understand it as well. It was the circumcision of the heart, something done inwardly by God. What did we say? Salvation is a gift of God, not as a result of works, and no one should boast. It's not something we do. It's a gift. And God gives this gift, but what's happening in the heart is going to determine how we see everything on the outside. If we start with the outside and then go to the heart, our heart is going to miss what God has for us. The Jews missed it, even though they had the Old Testament. It's not something that uh, has to do with anything they could brag about. If anybody could have bragged, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now he's talking about in what I can do humanly speaking here. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, says Paul, circumcised the eighth day. And then he goes on to list a number of other things why he could have confidence in the flesh, but he doesn't have confidence in the flesh because he understands something that the Jews didn't understand. You think Paul ever studied the Old Testament? I think he did. What do you think he read there? 
excuse me, here, here from what, here's what Paul wrote, and then we'll see where he got it. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And here is where it comes from. Deuteronomy 36, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. There's God's sovereignty, His part. Here comes our part. Jeremiah 4, 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you men of Judah and people of Jerusalem. But what about the church today? Paul says, You Gentiles in the flesh were without Christ, but you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what kind of outward appearance and things done in the flesh by the hands of men would prevent there being unity in churches today? In our church, for instance. Some time ago, I talked with a Vietnam veteran who was suffering from a number of maladies, including post-traumatic stress syndrome. He was, not a, he was not a Christian, but he came from a religious family. As a boy, he had been an orphan, and a family adopted him out of the orphanage, and the father of that family was a minister. And this fellow had a doctorate degree in divinity, and so he wasn't just an ordinary minister. He knew what he was talking about. The little boy grew up in the church, and he was baptized, and then he went off to Vietnam to fight in the war. And one day there was a terrific explosion, and he found himself repenting of his sin as he fell to the ground. And then everything went dark. Well, he survived, and he had 54 operations on his face because the explosion had disfigured his face. So finally he came home, and he... Uh, was welcomed by his family, and his pastor dad took him out to his study for a little talk. And he said, son, there are many people here in America who are opposed to the war, and they have strong feelings about our presence of the military there in Vietnam. And I think it would be best if you did not come to church in your present condition, because it would be those in the congregation who just would not understand. Now, at the time of our conversation, the boy was 55 years old, and that happened when he was 19. And he told me that the rejection by the church was the most painful thing that he had ever suffered in his life. After that incident, he checked out on anything that reeked of religion and began to live a life of immorality and substance abuse and pain and confusion. You see, he didn't look like the other people in the church, so they... Shut him out. Wow, aren't you glad that in our church? Well, it couldn't be our church. Some time ago, a man and his wife visited in our church several Sundays, and they were very enthusiastic about the worship. And the man invited me to have lunch with him. And when we uh, went to lunch, he was anxious to uh, give me a book that he had written, Discover the Story of Your Biblical Heritage, and this is uh, book number one out of seven. And it's a very well-written book. Uh, it has all the documenta documentation and the footnotes and everything that you would expect in a pretty good scholarly book. But as I read the book, something just wasn't right. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I was looking and looking, and then I looked on the Internet and I read from a previous book that he had written in 2007. And I want to quote to you from this book. 
If there is one main conviction among so many divergent Christian theological camps, it is that the gospel must absolutely be offered to every race, whether evangelical, neo-evangelical, fundamental, Pentecostal, Orthodox, Neo-Orthodox, Reformed, Calvinistic or Arminian, Catholic or Protestant, prophetically futuristic, historical, spiritual, or preterist, nearly all of what is called Christendom today preaches a universal, racially inclusive gospel. Furthermore, it will be demonstrated that this multiracial gospel message is not the gospel message of the Bible. End of quote. I could not believe what I was reading. But another quote from a writing in 2004 made it very clear. It's entitled, Have You Been Chosen, God's Choice by Covenant? Page 17, I quote, If you are a descendant of the Saxon or Caucasian people, and therefore of biblical Israel, you have been chosen of God to enter into a covenant relationship with Him. End of quote. Can you imagine what kind of unity that's going to bring in the church? Well, here's another book written by a friend of mine, Bob Shogren, married one of my former students. It's entitled Destination 2000, Moving the Church into the 20th Century. And in this book, he focuses on the unifying theme from Genesis to Revelation that we ought to take the gospel to the nations because it's intended for all people. And God predicted that all over the place. And in the appendix, he has hundreds of verses that would point toward God taking the gospel to all the nations in the church age. That's us. That's our job. Well, we have exactly the same problem in the church today that the Ephesians had back in their day, only it's not over circumcision. We see in churches strife and division and stress and tension all because of differences in diversity, differences due to diversity, differences that have been turned into disagreements and disputes, differences over baptism and the Lord's Supper, differences over church government, worship styles, liturgy, church membership, divorce and remarriage, roles of male and female in the church, differences in eschatology and all the other ologies, I'm not suggesting that we throw the differences out the window and get one big ecumenical circus tent and have everybody in there with every belief known to man. Certainly there are differences, and we have to face those things, but when differences become barriers, that can be a problem, barriers to unity in Christ. And certainly we have to stick with the truth of Scripture. Sometimes we have to take a stand. Week before last, Yvonne and I were visiting in another church in another city, and communion was served. And there was a written and verbal notice that if you were not a member of this particular denomination, you were not to take communion. You just pray while we're taking communion. And the implication is, if you're not a member of this church, you're not a Christian. And the only way you can become a member of this church is be baptized into this church. And that's the only way you're going to be included as a communicant in this church. Well, I didn't mind that. That's what I expected, and I did pray uh, while communion was being served. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, differences that create barriers. There may have been some true Christians sitting in that congregation, that audience, who would have liked to take communion. 
Well, you have to guard against these same kinds of things, things to guard against in the church. First is this process of turning differences into barriers leads to a false view of self. What do we do even subconsciously? Well, we tend to exaggerate whatever good in ourselves and we tend to denigrate whatever is wrong we see in others. And it's just an easy thing to do, but pride is knocking at the door when we start thinking that way. Uh, Then this leads to a deficient view of worship. Our understanding becomes clouded that whatever good comes from God. We know whatever good comes from God, but sometimes we start thinking the good is coming from us. Circumcision came from God. I don't think any ancient Israelis sitting around a campfire were going to come up with that idea. It came from God. But these Jews were thinking that, hey, this is what we've done in the flesh by hands. And so we're excluding everybody else. We end up with erroneous ideas about God's grace because we tend to look down on others who don't have it. And of course, without God's grace, they live the way that you would live without God's grace. And we're supposed to be the channel through which they get the grace. So somehow we've got to make some kind of connection there. Well, how do we resolve these things? Can we resolve them in the flesh made by hands? Not very well, but we have all kind of efforts and feeble attempts made to do that. We have conferences to iron out the differences. Sometimes we have the Protestants and the Catholics getting together to see if we can iron out the differences. So far, we haven't ironed them out. We write endless articles to convince others that their group is wrong. They ought to be a part of our group. We hold nonstop discussions to figure out who is right. There are denominations, sects, factions, splinter groups, and they all display to the world the disunity in Christ instead of unity. Many people who were born into a denomination are more committed to the denomination than they are to Christ. That's a shame. Well, let's quickly get an explanation of the solution. So what should we tell people about how to solve the unity problem we see every day? We see it in the news. Join the church. Watch out. That could be possibly be worse if you join the church that uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright goes to. He's a guy that called on God instead of blessing America that he would damn America. So much for peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Well, should we say, uh, read the Bible and apply the teachings of Christ? That ought to do it. Follow the Beatitudes, follow the Ten Commandments. Well, that stuff is passe. We're taking down the Ten Commandments all over the country. We don't believe those things anymore. Those things are legalistic. They are puritanical. And they are outdated. And we don't want that stuff anymore. And in educational institutions, in prisons, in public life, we have tossed out discipline and self-control. Maybe you saw last week in Minneapolis... Hundreds of demonstrators closed down stores. They blocked traffic. They closed down the airport because people couldn't couldn't get around. People missed their holiday flights. About a dozen were arrested. Do you think the police will be able to tell these people to join a church and live a moralistic lifestyle? I don't think that's going to happen. Will that bring about unity? You're never going to get unity that way unless the police could dress up like the demonstrators and maybe join them and then there would be some outward basis for unity.
Uh, If they go to church, the church might be the place where the demonstration is organized. If we don't have the gospel of Christ, it's not going to work. Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life that counts for eternity. He told Pilate he had come to testify to the truth. His word tells us about the truth of ourselves. We are wretched, lost, hopeless, unrighteous sinners. We're condemned to the wrath of God. Unless we see that, there's not going to be unity because everybody else is in the same boat. There's not going to be unity. There's going to be pride or the beginning of pride. Here's how we get united. We all recognize that we need God's mercy. We need God's forgiveness. We need His grace. And we need that resurrection power to be changed on the inside. We're not going to be able just to bite our lip and just accept these people who we would say may be unacceptable. We're going to have to love them in Christ. Then when that awareness motivates everybody to embrace Christ and begin to worship Him and rejoice in His salvation, then we begin to move toward being united in one one in spirit and purpose. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. It isn't the application of the Spirit of Christ by men that produces unity, but the putting of the Spirit of Christ into men through the gospel. End of quote. Unregenerate men can't apply the teachings of Christ. They don't want to. They don't see any need to do it. They don't understand spiritual things. There is none righteous, no, not one. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the condition of us all without Christ. So we don't have anything to be proud of. We're just like everybody else on the planet. And to boot, we're the Gentiles that were included, that Paul is talking about here. The Ephesian church, the Fredericksburg church. Well, what if God took a unity survey in our church this morning? Zero margin of error. How would you score? What would be the differences that might be obstructions to other people who don't look like us. I wonder. But here's the good news. The closer we draw to Christ, the less important outward appearance and external forms are going to be. The gospel cuts through all that difference, those differences, to make us one in Christ. So here's Christ... Here we are, the closer we get to Him, the closer we get to each other. There's our job for 2016. Now, we can do it right here in Fredericksburg, because if you're not going to them, they're coming to you. And I will assure you that they will be here, particularly from some of the nations nearby. So that's our job. We've got plenty of room for people to come in and have a seat, so we need to invite them. We need to get them in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you had this great plan before the world began that you would take the message of redemption to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised, to the nations. And we thank you that we've been included in that. And we thank you, Lord, for the vision that you have given some to really get involved with that and to really move out and get the job done. Mission trips, full-time missions, supporting missions, 
praying for missions, giving to missions. Our Lord, there are many things that we can do, and that's what we want to do. But we also want to bring people into our church. And we want to understand that they have not been the beneficiaries of your grace yet. But we want them to be, and we want to be a channel of your love and your grace to them. So we ask you now to guide us as we move into a time of prayer. We thank you for many blessings and gifts that you've given us in this past year. But now we want to think about the new year and the work that you have for us to do. And so we want to offer our praise and thanksgiving and also our prayers, prayers of supplication, prayers of intercession for others looking toward the future and how you would use us to accomplish your great commission. I pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.